You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Actually. So, good afternoon. And today we're going to be, today as we always sometimes we have a class, it's a memory of Rasha Fega Bas Mordechai Shachna. That's today's class as a memory of. And we always learn Torah. Today is also the yard site of the Rebetzin, Rebetzin Chaim Mushka. So today's class also in her memory. So it should only be for a blessing for their soul. I don't know. So, <clears throat> um, talking of this week's Torah reading, but you know, it always, uh, some things that we always happen, current events, and we try to tie it in a little bit to see what's going on with the Torah reading and how we can see it in the Torah reading. Last week we read about the Ten Commandments. This week we learn about the laws that were given to the Jewish people. But last Sunday, over a week ago, the whole Middle East was shook by the tragic events of the terrible earthquake that happened in uh, Turkey, the largest and strongest earthquake that happened over a hundred years. And it was on the border of Turkey and Syria, and I think today already over 22,000 people have been killed because of it. The earthquakes went as far as that they even, uh, people in Israel felt it, in the area of Shechem, and areas like that, and people were panicking and concerned that they too might be affected by that earthquake. But, but unfortunately, as we mentioned, too many people... Uh, have been killed and suffering because of it, and thank God they're still finding some people, but still, in all, as we know, that there were many people that were hurt by it. We mentioned this on Shabbos, that, interestingly enough, uh, about 33 years ago, in May of 1990, in the middle of the Lag Baomer parade, Lag Baomer parade was a, whenever Lag Baomer came out on a Sunday, the Rebbe would have a special parade for the children, the children from all different types of backgrounds would come together, the Rebbe would address them, and many times these talks would address different variety of issues, but even more so pertaining to the Jewish children, but also pertaining to the world at large, where the Rebbe would address, so to speak, a global um, area, you know, talking uh, concepts and talking and addressing people of all colors and shapes and uh, ethnicities. For example, one time the Rebbe spoke a talk in Russian to, to the Jews behind the Soviet Union, other different things of the kind. And, one t- and 33 years ago, during this Lag Bomber parade, this was 1990, out of the blue, the Rebbe all of a sudden changed subjects, and he was talking about the concept of how nations, and in the world, all nations, we all have different colors, stripes, flags, talents, qualities, and it is important that all of us share the talents and the qualities that we have with one another. And the, and the Rebbe then continued to say, when we all share with each other what we have, then they will, this will avoid earthquakes and things of the like. That was, the Rebbe said that concept, moved on. The Rebbe always spoke about love for a fellow Jew, helping one another, but talking about in a way of avoiding some type of negativity, and the Rebbe mentioned specifically about earthquakes. If anybody looks at that talk, every talk that the Rebbe gave was recorded, and then later on written and transcribed. If you look in that talk, well, after it was transcribed, you will see on the footnotes on the bottom, they write, this talk was actually said three weeks before the earthquake in Iran. 
six weeks, I'm sorry, before, and if you look, in June, in June of 1990, there was a terrible earthquake in Iran. Iran has generally a lot of earthquakes, but I think at that time they had one of their worst. It was a 7.1 magnitude. Over 50,000 people were killed. And this was said just a few months, not even a few months, whatever, before, um, before that earthquake. What was the Rebbe saying here? What was the Rebbe telling us? And the Rebbe is saying that the earth, essentially, is one. We're all on the same planet. We're all on the same globe. We all share the same common atmosphere. When we destroy it, when we destroy each other, what essentially we're doing, we're destroying the earth. And the earth says, I cannot tolerate, I cannot sit in a place where people cannot tolerate each other. But the amazing thing that happens is that after an earthquake, all of a sudden you see an unbelievable unity that comes together. Look today what's happening in Turkey. Israel is coming to Turkey and helping people, helping people in Syria, where these countries have the greatest animosity and hate, and it took the president of Turkey that he himself acknowledged the help and the thanking to the people of Israel for helping, and they saved, I think, over 20 people so far, pulled them out of the rubble. And all of a sudden, you see all different countries around the world come around to help after a tragedy. And of course, after a tragedy, everybody looks to help and come together. But the question we have to ask is, why does this happen to begin with? Why does the tragedy there to start with? And if we can avoid the pitfalls of the tragedy, if we can avoid the tragedy from happening or looking to see why it shouldn't happen, then we can avoid this occurrence and see what this happening is. You know, generally Jewish people by nature, whenever something happens, we ask the question, why does God do this? Why does God do such a thing? How come these things happen? And the question is, and in general we always look at things that happen, is how do people, and I think this takes us to a broader question, is how do we deal with opposition? How do we be, deal with people that are not necessarily in agreement with us? It's easy to get along with people that agree with you, and as they call it, yes people. That whatever they say, yes, they're in your team, they drank the Kool-Aid, you all get along, that's wonderful. That's not called getting along. Everybody's the same. They basically don't have a differences of opinion. But how do we get along and how do we achieve some type of uh, peace amongst people who are polar opposites, who live different lives, have different views? How do we make the people who come from different angles? You have an employee and employer that see the workplace as something differently. You have a couple who see things differently. How do you make sure those things come together? How do you make, how do you make that those things should stay forever and be connected as a glue for on? They say there's this, um, this psychologist. He's a very well-known Dr. John Gutman, a Jewish psychologist in America. That he, uh, he takes people and he analyzes people and whatever it may be. But they say he is able to look at a couple when they're engaged and they're having their discussion by having an interview with them for about 15 minutes. He will tell you how long the marriage is going to last. And they say he's usually about 90% right. And they asked him, how do you have that ability to check? He says, very simple. I asked them very simple questions. I asked them, let's say the baby wakes up at night. Who's going to get the baby? The kid has to be picked up from daycare. Who's stopping work to go get the kid? And I look right away and I see which person is into the marriage, which couple is into the relationship to help each other or which person's into the relationship to be able to gain for themselves. And right away I can tell you if this marriage is going to last or not. In every relationship there are differences of opinion as we're going to talk about. But when we talk about the concept of how we deal with differences and how we deal with differing of opinions, how do we deal with it, it gives us a better understanding and an appreciation for how we are able to overcome the differences 
and still get along at the same time while we might not always think along. So let's start with this week's Torah reading. And if we look at this week's Torah reading, most of it is dealing with many different laws that are mentioned in the Torah. In fact, the beginning of the Torah reading begins with the words, the Elah Mishpatim, and these are the laws I should set before you. And all of a sudden, the Torah goes into a variety of different types of uh, laws, telling us in, uh, different types of laws, but the laws pertaining to the slave, the maidservant, if a person gets into attack with one another, if a bull, if a bull hits another person, if you hit a person, how much you have to pay, you hit a parent, you hit a child, all these different technicalities, seemingly which are, as we call, mishpatim, obvious laws that any normal uh, society needs to be able to survive. And it goes on into many, many different technicalities of the, of the details of the laws. This Torah reading is actually called Mishpatim, which by definition means laws. But it is also the 18th Torah reading from the book of Genesis. From the beginning of the Torah to where we are today, this is the number 18th Torah reading. Which means it deals with the word Chai, with the life of the person. Physical, materialistic, very little, if you want to call spiritual, uh, connotation to any of it. It's more of a practical relevance into how we live our life. And over here the question is, if you look at it, seemingly, what's right after the Torah was just given? The Torah was just given how long ago? Last week's Torah reading. God gave the Jewish people the Ten Commandments. They're standing on the mountain. They're enjoying and they're seeing and they're basking in the greatness and the holiness of God. They're in an absolute spiritual trance. You'd think that what would God continue? Also about spirituality, how to become older, holier as God calls them. You're a kingdom of princes, you're a holy nation, you're the treasured people. And as soon after they get the Torah, what does he begin with? If you get a maidservant and she wants to leave early, or if you hit somebody, how much you have to pay and how much money, and now if a guy hits somebody else, if you find something, you have to pay him four or five. If you're watching something, seemingly monetary, very petty, different type of laws that any society, get a judicial system, set it up, you'll have your laws and gendic. What do you need God to get involved into the minuscule details of what's happening here? What's happening here? Is this really what the Torah is all about? Is this really what the Torah wants to tell us is what spirituality is all about? That we just according, all of a sudden you finish getting the Torah Mount Sinai, you saw godliness with your own eyes and this is what we go to? Is this what we're dealing with? And what's the first word in the Torah? The Elam Ishpatim, these are the laws, Asher Tassim Lifneim, that you should place before them. Jewish law tells us, what does the word Lifneim before them mean? That if you have a dispute with another Jew, where do you have to adjudicate your law? You have to bring it in front of a Jewish court. Not in front of idolaters, not in front of the non-Jews, that when one Jew has a dispute with another Jew, they should go to a Jewish court to adjudicate it. Why is that? And that is because the difference between the way a Jew sees something, a practical materialistic law, and the way we, and the way a non-Jew sees it. What does this mean? Number one, the, the overview, the balance, the way we see things in the general picture. The way we see things in the general picture, what is the whole objective and what's the whole point of the Torah? is that the Torah should permeate and go through every single per human's existence, even into the most monetary, physical, nitty-gritty of what a person does. That means whatever we do is viewed with the lens of the Torah. That when you come in front of a judge, 
And this judge looks to see what should be the case here. He's not just seeing two Jews who have a dispute about a monetary issue here. He is looking to see it with a godly lens, with a spiritual lens, what's happening over here as well. But even more so, and probably most importantly as well, or both important, but uh, is that the laws are different. Let's just take one, one very blatant example. Is one of the biggest differences, one of the important things that we find within Jewish laws, we find later on in this week's Torah reading, where it tells us that a person should be careful not to be swayed, uh, the judges should be careful not to be swayed by influence, and also that we go after majority. What does it mean to go after majority? So there are two types of laws that generally come in front of a court, especially in front of the Sanhedrin, which was financial matters and matters between life and death. What do we mean financial matters? A dispute. You damaged my property, your ox damaged my property, or you burnt the property, whatever it may be. Then there are the disputes which can be pertaining life and death. For example, somebody killed another person. Sanhedrin had to decide if the person was liable of capital punishment. Or if a person desecrated a law that was liable of capital punishment, also came in front of the Sanhedrin. When it came to laws of financial disputes, you go by majority. So there were different uh, levels of courts. There was a court of 23, a court of 71. And only a court of 23 was allowed to judge life matters and a court of 71. Younger, smaller courts, I should say, of three were allowed to do financial matters. And generally, you go by a majority of two against one. That's what you read the call, the, the, the case of my financial matters. When it comes, however, to uh, life and death, the capital punishment, you would need not only one over the majority, you would need two over the majority. So, for example, if you have a case of 23 judges who are ruling a case of capital punishment, you would need to have 13 against the 11 instead of not 12 against 11. You need to have more than just one. That's number one. Number two, another stringency that we find in Jewish law over uh, regular uh, secular law. In Jewish law, when it comes to capital punishment as well, so for example, if let's say a court case moves on, generally they had to finish the court case that exact same day. If it was a case of capital punishment, if it was a case pertaining um, let's say that they wanted to make the person innocent, they could have finished it that day. But if they wanted to make the person guilty of capital punishment, they were not allowed to finish it that day. They would have to wait until the next day. They would have to sleep on it, and only after the next day come back and decide to make the judgment. That's not, and the reason is because hopefully if they'll sleep on it, maybe somebody will come up with an advantageous um, uh, argument for the individual, which can save his life. And therefore, before we make such primary decisions, we have to make sure to uh, make the person's, to make sure that the person has, the person's life can be saved in any way possible. Then there is another one. Another interesting one which we find, and this is a third one, which is going to be today's, uh, more of today's subject as well. And this is as follows. And one of the major differences between Jewish law and secular law. In Jewish law, when it comes to capital punishment, if there's a unanimous decision, everybody says this person is guilty, he's actually declared innocent. He's acquitted. Now you may ask, what's the rationale behind it? So what you have over here is generally when it comes to a court or a tribunal, you have a person comes in front of the Besden, in front of the rabbinic tribunal, and they say this person is accused of capital punishment, the defense, the prosecution, there's witnesses, interrogation, and everything else. And then finally, 
the, the Bezdin, the rabbis of the Sanhedrin, had to then weigh out all the different scenarios and situation, have the different discussions of what should be and shouldn't be, and then they would become to the decision that they may make. Now, as we just mentioned, should everybody be unanimous to say that this person is guilty, he is then acquitted. What is the reason? And the obvious reason which is given, which is because if we all come to the decision, you know, people like to say, because how is it possible that so many Jews in one room should be agreeing? That means they both didn't read the case properly. And that means they're not listening to a, their own intuition. They're following somebody else's opinion. And because none of them have used their own intuition to be able to find a way, because it is impossible that you have so many people in one place and that they don't nobody has a difference of opinion. What do we see from here? That their argument, that the issue over here is that means because they all came into this approach, into this case, all with one decision. Meaning they nobody here saw a different angle from it. They initially came in as one, and therefore they finished as one, and therefore there was no varying opinions. What we see over here is something very surprising. How is it possible that a unanimous decision, a unanimous decision means that the person's acquitted? The opposite of what they are deciding. There are many different countries in the world that have also brilliant scholars, and nobody else has such a system. In America, in order to make somebody guilty of capital punishment, it's just the opposite. You need to have a unanimous decision to make somebody guilty of capital punishment. You don't go by majority. The jury has to be unanimous to come to a decision. If there's one person in the jury that doesn't have an opinion, what's it called? A hanging jury. And they can retrial the case, or it's a mistrial. Why? So you can have murderers that get off a case if there's no unanimous decision because of a hung jury. But the Torah is just the opposite. The Torah says the moment there's a unanimous decision, we have the case, and this has happened also in America many times, there was the case where people are exonerated after many years of sitting in prison and all of a sudden they find out a defense and they see that this was not a case, especially today with DNA, that they're able to prove it. But there was an interesting case in Israel once that there was this woman that was found killed, they accused the Bedouin uh, tra- uh, sanitation fellow, that he buried her in a pile of garbage and he killed her. He was then arrested. Then eventually he c- called back his confession because they officially had a confession that he did in prison. He then recanted his confession and they retrialed him and went all the way up to the main, uh, what do you call it, attorney general. They retrialed the case. And when they retrialed the case, they lowered his sentence. He, he got a life in prison, but they lowered his sentence on the account because when he was tried, it was not a unanimous decision. And because there were some people that said that he was innocent, so therefore they gave him a lesser sentence. So you see that the only, as we mentioned, the Jewish, Judaism is just the opposite. When there's a unanimous decision, that's when the person's acquitted. What's the reason for it? What's the rationale behind it? 600 years ago, there was a book written in Algier. Algier is in Algeria. We're um, right next to in Africa, North Africa. And the name of the book was a very important book by the name called Milchemes Mitzvah. The, mitzvah, the War of a Mitzvah. The purpose of the book and the reason why it was written, there was a fellow by the name, there was an apostate, by the name of Yeshua, um, Yeshua Holarchy, who was making continuous debates against the Jewish people. And there was a rabbi by the name of the Tajbet, Rabbi Shimon ben Semach Doran, who his son, Rabbi Shimon ben Shimshin Doran, wrote a book in order to refute all this apostate's arguments against Judaism. And one of the things that he wrote against was this apostate wrote against was the rationale and the teachings of the Talmud and what the Talmud's issues and so on. And he wrote an explaining from 
the Talmud's perspective, explaining the different rationales of the mitzvot of the Torah. And one of the things that he mentions there, which he says, I cannot avoid by discussing this idea that came up, how come that when the Bezdim, when the rabbinic tribunal is unanimous decision that the person is guilty, all of a sudden that's when he's acquitted. And he explains as follows. And he says that when a person, as we mentioned before, that when a person comes into court and it starts off with a, and you see on a unanimous decision, that means that this person did not get a fair trial. Meaning that all of the people in the court were blinded by a certain aspect and did not allow themselves to see the entire picture fully. Because of that, any type of incident who starts off with the idea that means that it comes to unanimous issues and that the person is liable of capital punishment means that this individual did not see it properly. There's a certain law, Jewish law, which is Ein Eid Nasadayin. If you're a witness, you can't be a judge. If you're a judge, you can't be a witness. Why? Because the moment I see things, I automatically have a bias. The moment I view something, I saw it with my own eyes, as people say, then you can't be a judge. A judge, by definition, means I didn't see it. A judge, by definition, means I listen to other people's accounts, and then I come to a certain, a certain conclusion. But the question is why? What's wrong? Maybe if the person sees it, maybe what's the best thing for the judge, then he should see it. What would be better for a judge to judge something that he sees with his own eyes? Why would I rather to hear something from somebody else and then make a decision? Why would a unanimous decision be something that is worthy an acquittal? Isn't it something which is so obvious, so concrete, and so rationalistic that every single person on the jury, every single person in the court, is guilty? Why would I say, okay, so he couldn't come up with another opinion? Why is it so important that there be a dissent, a dissenting opinion? Why is it so important that the judge should not see the actual thing? So there are many different discussions and many different commentators that explain it. And there's another, based on what we started discussing before, about what the Rebbe told us in Lag Bomer, on that Lag Bomer 33 years ago, about everybody agreeing. What does this mean? If everybody agrees on the same thing, it means that somebody hasn't thought properly. What does that mean? If everybody only has one interpretation and one view on a certain concept, on a certain incident, that means somebody was really too quick to be able to come and say another, uh, to think about it on their own. Think about it. And this is an unbelievable thing you can find. You can see two people watch an accident. Go over to those two people afterwards and ask them to report you on the accident. You will never find two people that have the same reporting that happened. They're both there, both watching the incident. One person's going to say the car on the right went quicker, and one person say the car on the left went quicker. Ah, you see it? And they'll watch it, they'll replay it, and they'll have it in their mind, but you will never find that two people can see something, every person's going to see something else. Why? Because we all see things from our own purview. Now imagine, if we like driving slow, we'll believe that the car that was driving fast, even though it was going according to the speed limit, was speeding. Because I like going exactly the speed limit. So if it was going five miles over, I'll call it speeding. So whenever we see something in life, 
we always see things through our own purview. The same idea is also whenever we hear things, whenever we analyze things, we are analyzing it from our perspective. And it is impossible for to us to divorce ourselves from that biasness. Because we have a certain bias, a certain way of seeing things, the way God made us. We all have different ways of thinking. The more people there are, the more opinions there are. That's not a curse. It's not a blessing. It's an ins- that's the way it is. That's the way life is. The more people you have seeing something, the more ways you're going to have a different view of it. And they can all be true from that person's perspective. And they can all be true if you accentuate or if you elaborate or if you look from one angle. That's what you'll see. One person sees it from one angle. Another person sees it from another angle. The Talmud says this in a fascinating way, and we actually spoke about this in our class in the mon- on Tuesday nights. The Talmud says when you have an argument between Basilel and Beishamai, the two very major oppositions that we find and that discuss many debates in the Talmud. And the Talmud says, Beishamai says like this, Beishilel says like this, two opposing opinions. And a voice of heaven comes out and says, Eilu vi Eilu They're both the word of God. How is that possible? How can they both be the word of God if they're both saying opposing opinions? Because what does it mean, an opposing opinion? An opposing opinion doesn't mean that the other one is wrong or the other one is right. We have to follow the halacha according to one. But the other one, from his opinion, was the right perspective. And therefore, it can be the word of God. It can be his interpretation. There's a very well-known story about a great scholar by the name of Chaini Amagel. Chaini Amagel was one of the greatest scholars of his time. He lived about uh, the end of the era of the Second Temple. He got the name, just an interesting side note, how he got the name. Choyni was his name, Hamagal means of the circle. He got his name because he was well known that whenever he prays, God will answer his prayer. And there was a time when there was a terrible drought and the Jewish people came to him to pray for rain. So he made a circle and he said, God, I'm not leaving the circle until the Jewish people get their rain. And it started drizzling. So he said, God, I don't know it just drizzles. I need pouring, I need rain of blessings. It started pouring rain, downpours, torrential pours. So he said, God... I don't want torrential pours, which is going to be destructive for the crop. I need a rain of blessing. And with that came rain of blessing. And from then he was well known by his name, but that was only one episode. But what he was really well known for was his ability to be able to explain and articulate and give meaning to all the words and expressions in the Talmud. And one of the things that bothered him was, how is it possible that in Psalms it says that exile is is only like a dream? And the exile went for 70 years. So he says, who can sleep? Who has a dream for 70 years? So God made it that he was once a traveling, and he sees a guy planting a boxer tree, carob tree. So he asks the fellow, why are you planting a carob tree? You know, it takes 70 years for a carob tree to fully mature and enjoy its fruit. So the fellow looks at him and says, my grandparents planted it for me. I'm going to plant for my children. Okay. All of a sudden he fell asleep and he became extremely tired and exhausted and he fell asleep and he slept for 70 years. How did he know he slept for 70 years? When he wakes up, he sees a person eating fruit from the tree. So he asks him, who are you? Did you just plant the tree? He says, no, my grandfather planted the tree for me. So he had that amazing thing. After he saw that 70 years, he was, uh, he was in a coma for a long time. He decided to go to the shul to be able to, to the study hall to study like he used to. 
and he walks inside and he hears the students studying and they're explaining and they're saying, this is the piece in the Talmud and we know it because Chaini, who is the one that used to explain it, this is the way he explained it. So he jumps in and he says, I'm that Chaini. They look at him and he said, you're off your, hell, off your mind. Chaini Amagel hasn't been around for 70 years. What do you mean you're that Chaini? He says, I'm telling you, I'm that Chaini. I was in a coma, I'm now around and I'm a... They didn't want to listen to him. They thought he was a guy, a Meshuggah, walked into the, te- to the synagogue and said, he's Chayni Amagel. What is he saying? He's Chayni Amagel. And he prayed to God and said, listen, I have nobody to talk to. There's nobody to talk to. Nobody listens to me. And he asked God that he take his life away. Take, take his life away. Because he says he has nobody to talk to. Nobody wants to recognize him. Everybody thinks I'm a Meshuggah. And with that, the great scholar, Talmudic scholar, Rava said, here we have a proof. Either I have a partner or I'd rather be in, in a different place. What did he need? Either have somebody that you can debate with, somebody that you can talk with, somebody that you can acknowledge, somebody you can learn with. They don't have to agree with you. They need, so you need somebody that's going to be able to learn with you. Learning with you does not mean that they agree with everything you say. We take another example. There were two brother-in-laws. And I said the story once before how they became brother-in-laws, but the bottom line is they were brother-in-laws. And they would study back and forth, and they would always have this back and forth. And because of a very tragic event, Rabbi Yechanan Rishlakish um, passed on. And because of that, the, his students tried to console their teacher, Rabbi Yechanan. So they put a fellow there, I think it was Rabbi Sheshes, and he put him there, and he used to learn with him. And he would always ask, Whenever, whatever Rabbi Yechanan said, he would say, oh, I have a proof, you're correct. I have a proof, you're correct. Rabbi Yechanan looked at him and said, is this is what I need? I need you to prove to me if I'm correct. I had Rishlakish, everything I said, he had 24 questions on. That's what I want to hear. I don't need you to tell me I'm right. I want to hear you to ask me questions. They say a funny story. There was a fellow, his name was Nathan Yellen Moore. He was an Israeli writer, very leftist, like was pro-Palestinian state, as left as you can imagine. And he would write articles in the Algemeiner Journal. The Algemeiner Journal was a Yiddish newspaper. And the point that he, even though it was a Yiddish newspaper run by a Chabad guy, but he was to, and the Rebbe actually told him to put everybody's opinions in there. Uh, very left opinions as this guy, but he mostly was right opinions, whatever and so on. And this guy once, this Mr. Yellen Moore once came in front of the Rebbe uh, for Kaishal Brach, I think, to get a couple of blessings. And when he came to the Rebbe, the Rebbe looks at him and says, you know, I read, the Rebbe tells him, I read your articles. He looks at him and says, the Rebbe reads my articles? He knows he's a big lefty uh, and secular individual. So he looks at the Rebbe and he asks the Rebbe, does that mean that the Rebbe agrees with what I write? So the Rebbe looks at him and says, if I would only read things that I agree with, I'll have very little to read. <laughs> you can le- read and somebody else's opinion doesn't mean you have to agree with it Judaism is not that we all follow drink the Kool-Aid Judaism is about having differences of opinions in fact if you look in the Torah what is a wife called a wife is called Ezer Kenegdo the helper that opposes him that means how does the wife help the husband not by saying, yes, sir, but maybe saying, maybe you should do it a different way. Always giving the constructive criticism and by the very fact that she's there to be able to enhance. It's Azer, it's the biggest help, but because he has an opposing view, because he has something else to look at. This is what we talk about. 
when we look, if you look in any page of the Talmud, it's full of arguments. All these differences of opinion. And you ask yourself the question, can't they agree on something? Every single thing has to have an argument. To the extent that we find an interesting piece in the Talmud, which talks about it, and we mentioned this also in our class on Tuesday night, about once there was a difference of opinion, and Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Eliezer wanted to prove that he is right, so therefore he had the wall bend, and a voice of heaven came out and said, Allah is like him. And they said, no, the Torah is up in heaven, over here we have to debate. Jude, excuse me, Judaism is meant... Halacha, the way we know what Jewish law is, is because there is a debate, because there are differences of opinion, because we're able to discuss and analyze and say, you say like this and I say like this. Of course, we have to resolve and come to a final opinion. But because we come to a final opinion doesn't mean that the other opinion is wrong. For now, we have to follow this opinion. And that's why it says even about Beishamai and Beishelo, when Mashiach comes, we're going to follow Beishamai. If it was a, such a wrong opinion, then we wouldn't follow it ever. It's because it's a right opinion, but everything has its time. Every single opinion, every single Torah thought, every single concept and disagreement, as long as it's grounded within the Torah values, as long as it's not done out of hate and animosity, it's because of clarification, has place in Torah, not only has place, as a part of Torah. And this is why we find in general, the concept of disagreements, and if you look at ethics of our fathers, it tells us that every disagreement that's for the sake of heaven will ultimately continue. Why would you want the disagreement to continue? And in fact, if you look at the difference between the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, we will always rule like the Babylonian Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud has less debates, while the Babylonian Talmud is full of debates. Because the concept of a debate is not necessarily because I disagree with you, is to refine, to be able to make the idea pure better and the only way i can understand that and articulate that item better is if i have the debate if i hear an opposing view the only way i know that what i'm saying is correct is because i hear an opposing view i'm able to explain it articulate it debate it and also to be there for it the same idea is also what we find going back to what we found we were talking about before why a unanimous decision if a person does not have an opposing opinion, if a person doesn't have a difference of opinion, that means he did not see the full picture. That means the very fact that everybody's unanimous on this decision, that means that somebody here didn't look at the picture completely. Or else he would see it with his own purview, and then he would have come up with a different opinion. Because the bottom line is that it's impossible that all of us should have a unanimous decision. Unless we are following a greater person and we don't have our own opinion. Because the world is made up of different opinions. People are made up of different opinions. Like it says in the Talmud, the same way we don't look alike, we don't think alike. And having differences of opinion is not a bad thing. On the contrary, is a complementary thing. If we look, this year is called the year of Hakel. Hakel was in the time, every seven years in the Holy Temple, all the Jewish people, men, women, and children would come to the Holy Temple and hear the Torah read by the king. You ask yourself the question, men, women, and children all have different scholarly levels. How is it possible that the king is going to be able to teach them all? They'll all be able to learn there. And this is the concept of Hakil. And this is the concept of what it means to get along. We can all be different and still get along. We can all be unique and still have something that brings us together and have some type of common denominator. It doesn't mean that just because I am on one level and you may be on a different level that we can't have as a common thing to learn together and to study together and to be able to grow together. 
And the very fact that we are all different, that gives us the ability to even help us grow together. Look at something unique, the way Jewish people address each other. What do you call a family getting along? Shalom bayis, peace in the home. When do the Kohanim bless the Jewish people? It's in the last and final blessing of Teshmon Esrei, which is called Sim Shalom, God should give us peace. The Medrash tells us, the Yalkut Shimoni says, peace is so great by God that the, he places it at the end of every single blessing, at the every, end of every single prayer. We say, The one that made peace above should make peace below and bring us peace amongst us. How is the blessing of the Kohanim? What's the last one of their blessings? We are same lecha shalom, and may they bring peace upon you. What is the popular adage that we give, which, wish and greet each other every single Shabbat? We say Shabbat shalom. In Yiddish, they say Aguten Shabbos. Where does it come from? The Code of Jewish Law says one of the commentators on the Code of Jewish Law says when a person visits his friend on the Shabbos morning, he should greet him Shabbat shalom or Shabbat tov, a peaceful Shabbos or a good Shabbos. Why? Because it says, Remember the Shabbos day to be holy. So you see again, the concept of being Shabbos is connected with Shabbos Shalom. We don't say, Yom Tev Shalom. You say, Shabbos Shalom. Why do you say Shabbos? We only have Shabbos Shalom. And the, the Medrash says, that what does the word Shalom come from? Why do we say, Shalom Bim Ramav. Who Yasa Shomalim? The one that makes peace above and high. And it explains that on high, God has many different ministering angels. One of the angels is Malach Michal, Angel Michael, and he is like an angel which represents snow. Gavriel, the angel Gavriel represents fire. And they both stand in front of God, and the fire doesn't melt the snow, and the snow doesn't destroy the fire. In front of God, there's peace, there's harmony, you can have two polar opposites, and they can all get along. The same thing we also tell each other, that we can be completely polar opposites. Shabbat Shalom. Why Shabbat Shalom? Because if you look when God created the universe, see every single day He created another thing. Every single day He created another, whether there's vegetation, animals, rocks, stars, planets, and all of them seemingly separate entities. And the Talmud says, if not for God creating Shabbos, they will all destroy each other. The world wouldn't stand. What did God do? On Shabbat, He didn't create anything. He made that all these separate entities, which are seemingly opposites, don't get along or shouldn't be get along. On Shabbat, there's all a peace. There's a harmony. Exactly what Shalom means. You have a husband and a wife, so to speak. Maybe different opinions. Good, it's healthy. Because they get along and they complement each other. You can have all the different things that happen in the world. And because of their disagreements, that means the greatest blessing of peace is that we can have disagreements. And because of our disagreements, we get along and we are able to complement one another. And this is when we talk about the concept of, if you recall, Rabbi Akiva, he had students that they passed away, 24,000 students in Malik Bomer, they stopped. And that was because they didn't have Avaz Yisrael. What does it mean they didn't have Avaz Yisrael? We mentioned this at length. If Rabbi Akiva was a person who taught Avaz Yisrael, was because they had differences of opinion and they couldn't tolerate that somebody else had a difference of opinion. The concept of Shalom, what Shalom means, that each person is able to complement one another, to agree with one another, to care for one another, notwithstanding they have a difference of opinion. If you think about it, when we say, the concept is that you take three steps back and then three steps forward. Why do we do that when we say the words, 
This will help us to understand the uh, disagreements between Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel. We mentioned that whenever there's a disagreement between Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel, who do you follow? Beis Hillel. Why do we follow Beis Hillel? And the Talmud says something very interesting, why we follow Beis Hillel. Beis Hillel had a certain character to them, a certain way of how they would act, and that because of that, the halachas like Beis Hillel. Number one, Beis Hillel was quiet while Beis Shammai was talking. They listened. Before you debate somebody, you can have a differences of opinion, but before you debate, listen to what the other person has to say. Not only would they keep quiet and listen to what they said, but even more so. They allowed Beis to go first. I mean Beis Shammai to go first. That means even though they were the majority, Beis was the majority, they had more people than the Beis school. They allowed Beis to say the opposing view first. They gave the credit. Yes, you disagree with me. But I'll give you respect. I'll allow you to speak. I allow you to be relevant. I can disagree, but respectfully disagree. When we say the Osa Shalom Bim Ramav, that's exactly what we're expressing. Step number one. Putting things in perspective. Putting things into putting, giving a person the ability to recognize who they are. Even more so, allowing the person to go even first. Recognizing that these people, yes, they, are may, they have a valid point. They may have something, you may have a disagreement with another person, but there's no reason to put them down, to denigrate them, to demean them, to be cynical to them, to have animosity because of it. I take three steps back. I allow things to be put into perspective. I allow things to be seen the way they are. And only then do I bow forward and come and say my opinion. I take three steps back. The way I make peace is that I take a step back. I allow the other person to say something. Every single thing, you can be 100% right. But it's not what you say. It's about how you say it and how you do it. Going back to what we started before, what the Rebbe said about the earthquake. Every single country has the right, not only the right, an obligation to be independent. Independent of the way of thinking, in the way, independent of the way they run their country. Independent. The question is only, how do they go about it? How do they view somebody else? Where do they look at another person? Where do they recognize another country? Why do you have to hate hateful and deterrent and destroy the other person? When we get along and complement each other because of our differences, then there's no need for earthquakes. Or you can have a person, a debate, or you have an alachic view, you have a different point of view, that's wonderful. But because you have another point of view, doesn't mean that you have to denigrate, destroy the other person who may have a different view than you. Whether it's in politics, whether it's in Torah, whether it's in baseball, whatever it may be. And even if it means that you have to be able to teach a Jewish law, you have to be able to prove a point of a Jewish law, you can also do it respectfully while respecting that other person. Just to conclude with this fascinating story, you actually see it on video. It's a fascinating story. There's a fellow, his name was Tzatzkis. He was a chazan. His name was Tzvi Tzatzkis, Herschel Tzatzkis. He used to come every single Kaishal Bracha, ever since he came out of the Soviet Union. He was a Russian Jew from the former Soviet Union. And he would stand by the Rebbe, by Kaishal Bracha, and sing songs while the Rebbe was handing out wine. And you see this always for hours. He would sing, and other people would sing, and people would sing with him, sing Russian songs, sing regular songs, whatever it may be. 
One time he brought his daughter with him. And his daughter was standing at his side and he wanted his daughter to sing with him. Now you can imagine if a girl sings, it becomes a halachic problem that men are not supposed to hear women sing. And the Rebbe is standing there. Now, the daughter is singing. You could right away see somebody come over, hey, get out of here, you know, scream everything else. The Rebbe quietly called over Rabbi Groner, who was his, his personal assistant, and said he should go over to the girl and tell her that she should clap with her hands while her father sings. Listen to the words. The Rebbe didn't tell her don't sing. They were to clap with your hands while your father sings. Now, if she's clapping automatically, she wasn't able to hold the mic and sing, right? Once she started clapping, the Rebbe started clapping towards her, turned around towards her, put down his cup. You see it on the video. The Rebbe puts down his cup while he was pouring everybody, towards turns her and starts clapping with his hands. With that, everybody, all the thousands of people there were clapping and giving this girl attention. What did the Rebbe do? The Rebbe could have said, ah, get this girl off the stage. What did the Rebbe do? Gave her the attention, made this little girl feel like a million dollars and at the same time teach her a lesson that she shouldn't be singing. The same idea is also, we can make people feel great or denigrate them. The same exact words for the same exact purpose. If our disagreements come to denigrating the person, then your opinion is no better than the other person's. Anytime there's a disagreement, and this is what the Torah tells us, these are, these are the laws that you set before them. Before them has a view. You have to go to a Jewish bezdin, to a rabbi who has a view that he looks at two opposing people. Not that they're in conflict with one another, but how you can bring them together, that they can recognize and see each other's opinion to complement one another. And with that, we can avoid any other, and hopefully with only the good things and happiness and blessings to come.